Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. And I'm joined by our managing producer, Sarah Leibovitz, because she's going to bring us this next conversation, which is about Russia's war in Ukraine and one Seattle man's quest to deliver aid to the Ukrainian people and keep attention on their cause. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hey, Libby. Good to be here. So this is a big ask, but catch us up on the last 23 months or so of this war. In February of 2022, Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. Overnight, in the capital of Ukraine, the sound of missile strikes and air sirens. Russia overnight launched its long-anticipated attack on Ukraine, striking military posts across the country. Good morning from the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Gunfire and explosions have been heard here and in the second city of Kharkiv. It was the largest attack on a European country since World War II. And in the years since, through a massive loss of life on both sides of the conflict, Russia has managed to hold on to about a fifth of Ukraine. The thousand-kilometer front line barely budged in 2023, and some reports say Russia is just waiting for Western attention to fade before winning a long, protracted war of attrition. In other words, it's a stalemate. But has America's attention faded, Sarah? I mean, there's been a lot of horse trading in Congress over this question, right? There has. And in the U.S., attention hasn't so much faded, more like it's been overshadowed by the Israel-Hamas conflict and captured by a partisan quagmire. The White House says assistance has ground to a halt due to fighting in Congress. And last week, the Biden administration came empty handed for the first time to a meeting of 50 nations coordinating military support for Ukraine. On Soundside, we've been keeping up with the war in Ukraine through the eyes of one Seattle-based aid worker, David Tagliani. He's been there from almost the beginning of the war. Sarah, remind us a bit about who David is and what he's doing there. Yeah, David Tagliani is a first responder. Before that, he worked for Microsoft and then Mercy Corps and FEMA. And he's been in Ukraine for much of the war with his dog, also named Libby. Love it. He's an EMT who specializes in search and rescue. And two years ago, he left on what was supposed to be a short aid trip to Ukraine. It was the first time his work had taken him to an active war zone. I met with David last year to hear more about his work with a Ukrainian NGO called Stay Safe. He's been on our show a couple of times now. Earlier this month, I met with him again to hear how things have changed in the years since we last spoke. And we're going to hear that conversation now. Sarah, what can people expect? Well, David told me that in many ways, the work in Ukraine has stayed the same. Stay Safe collects supplies in the relatively safe western city of Lviv, donated food, medicine, diapers, things like that, and brings them to eastern Ukraine, which has faced the brunt of the violence. Although in the last year, the area they're serving has widened. Since the dam explosion, uh, when the Russians blew up the dam in Kherson, we now do probably every other week we go to the south. So we basically get to the center of the country and then hang a right and head straight down to uh, the Black Sea. Any people who are living in those areas, in the newly liberated areas, we can then pick up as refugees and move them further into safer areas within the uh, interior of Ukraine. David is the only American who works with the NGO Stay Safe. The rest of the organization is primarily made up of Ukrainians. 
And that means he's one of the few people allowed to travel outside Ukraine for supplies or to collect donations. Ukrainian men need permission to leave the country right now. It also means he can come back to Seattle to visit family and friends during the holidays. And it was while he was visiting that we met at the studio here in Seattle. And he told me that the people of Ukraine are tired. He's also worried that public attention is fading. Once the Israeli-Gaza conflict hit on October 7th, then that was a huge uh, blow to Ukraine because uh, basically they were moved from second page to the fifth page of newspapers. Um, And so now we're in the position where it's sort of like the counteroffensive is done. Everybody is, is hunkering down for winter. And so there is this sense that um, things have reached a sort of a stalemate uh, in many ways. And that's, that's probably not entirely wrong in many ways. I think that it is going to be that way may, maybe all the way through 2024 um, because they just don't have the sort of um, armaments that they need to really mount a, an effective um, counteroffensive at this point. So the amount of aid that the United States has given has dropped off precipitously. You've probably seen that at this point, um, it's at zero. (laughs) So uh, going from uh, the billions of dollars that were flowing in in 2022 and then into 2023, basically until the middle of the summer, um, that level of aid has now kind of fallen off to basically what amounts to zero at this point. What difference does that make for people in Ukraine? Like, you know, we hear they're at an impasse. No aid is going right now. What does that look like on the ground? It means that um, Ukraine is if they are not able to continue to get the level of support that they're getting, then you can only hold against that for so long. And so that's kind of where we are right now. And the feeling on the ground is um, Ukrainians are are certainly still super um, uh, their gratitude for getting all of this material. They of course realize that without it, they're, they'd be to sticks and stones, which they would they would do. They're not giving up. Um, but without it, uh, it's going to make things much much harder to um, even maintain the battlefront the way it is right now, um, it would be difficult to maintain that with 10,000 shells coming one direction and only 2,000 shells responding. Um, So to tie it into what we're doing, uh, at this point, um, people are, you know, combatants on the Ukrainian side are being injured, shot, that kind of thing. Um, At this point, like World War II, basically... Two guys with a stretcher have to go out, get people who are wounded, load them on a stretcher, and then carry them off. So not only are you then um, the person who's been injured, of course, is now uh, vulnerable to being shot, but then the two stretcher bearers are also. So you have three people who are now being you know, exposed to fire. So we decided, Stay Safe decided probably in March or April of last year, of this year, just, well, last year now, um, that... What we could do is uh, provide what really basically amounts to drones um, with wheels um, to respond to those injured on the front lines, load them onto um, where you can still be safe, you're in the trench, you're not being exposed to fire, load the wounded onto these uh, wheeled drones, and then somebody with a 
controller can then bring that uh, wounded soldier back to the um, the resuscitation areas is what they call it. So now you're not exposing uh, two additional people. Not only can they continue to fight because they're not being they're not stretcher bearers, but they're also not being exposed to fire from the enemy. So uh, we made a proposal in the summer to say, you know, what do you guys think to the Ministry of Defense to say, uh, you know, this is a a perfect um, situation for us, for Stacey, because we're a humanitarian aid organization. You know, we don't have guns. We're soft targets in every possible way. But this is a way that we could keep in line with our humanitarian um, focus and uh, also do what we can to support the military. They were very interested. And so we're now in the process of actually building these drones and delivering them to the military Um, training uh, people to use them in the same way, you know, you have dual joysticks that it's actually a Steam Deck, which is a game controller normally, uh, that it just shows the creativity of the the Ukrainians. It's like, oh, you know, this is a, this is Steam Deck runs Linux. So all we have to do is overwrite that operating system. We'll write our own operating system on top of it and we'll be able to control these uh, drones with our own uh, our own joysticks. So That's big though. You're going from like, you know, when we last spoke, you were mainly you were delivering goods, you were helping people uh come back from the front. Now you're building and providing like equipment for the military. Right. Right. How are you doing? Who is building it? Where are you getting the supplies? How how are you doing all of that? It is. We're still doing that. We're still delivering supplies. We're still evacuating refugees, that kind of thing. But this is a whole brand new area that um, it was, again, sort of like looking at our skill set, you know, in in the group uh, to say, what are we good at? Um, you know, bending metal and uh, programming, that's that's my background. Uh, not that I'm, you know, in there like actually coding, but, uh, you know, I can be part of the uh, discussions about, you know, what kind of features are we looking for, what, you know, that kind of thing. Fortunately, uh, the metal bending and painting and all that kind of stuff, uh, we had that skill set within the group already. Uh, some of the programming, that was also in the group already. Um, but we just contracted. So the first kind of iteration of this drone was sort of our own deal uh, for the motors and the internals and the you know computer boards and stuff like that. We just went to Alibaba, which is <laughs> online, yeah. you know, just, um, you know, based uh, primarily in China and went online. So, you know, you have to get, uh, you can't just get regular motors, you have to get what are called stepper motors, which means that that they're computer controlled. So that means to go forward, all the wheels have to turn at the same revolution, but to turn left and right, one set of wheels has to turn, go forward, and the other set of wheels has to go backwards. You know, it's just like a RC controlled car. If you had one, gotten one of these for Christmas, it's the exact same idea. Um, so getting these stepper motors, you know, Alibaba is a perfect uh, example of, you know, they have lots of these things. Uh, circuit boards, again, Alibaba is great. You know, I don't mean to be doing a commercial here for Alibaba, but uh, it is the way that we get these things. And they are all delivered into Poland. We go into Poland and, you know, because there are no flights into into Ukraine still. We just go across the border to, the, uh, to our warehouse, pick these things up and bring them back in. 
Um, and then as we started to gear up and build more of these um, drones, we then started to have to contract out some of this work because it's just um, more than, you know, eight guys can do. Uh, so we now have – and one thing everybody knows about Ukraine is they had their – full of programmers and full of computer guys and gals, you know, they're doing it at kind of a discount because this is sort of their way that they're, you know, providing help to the military. That is the, you know, one side about this, you know, tech savvy people is something that Ukraine is sort of known for. So we kind of kind of uh, have taken advantage of that. That's David Tagliani, a first responder EMT, currently living and working in Ukraine. And Soundside producer Sarah Leibovitz has been bringing us that conversation. Sarah, how is that drone production going now? David told me that as of now, Stay Safe has provided five or six of their homemade rescue drones to the military and that they're planning to provide two to three more per month going forward. Now, spending two years in Ukraine in an active war zone doesn't leave a person untouched. When we come back, David is going to tell me how he's been feeling as he heads back to Ukraine. You're listening to Soundside. We'll be right back with that conversation on KUOW. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman, and I'm joined by Soundside's managing producer, Sarah Leibovitz. And Sarah, we've been hearing your conversation with David Tagliani, who is a Seattle-based EMT and a first responder doing search and rescue work in Ukraine, along with his dog, who has a great name. Her name's Libby. That's right. And yeah, for the last two years, David and Libby have been living in Ukraine, working with a local NGO called Stay Safe to provide supplies and equipment to civilians and Ukrainian military forces in the eastern part of the country where the fighting is heaviest. David told me that the work is hard and it's feeling harder as he's getting older. He just turned 66 a few weeks ago. And, you know, when I met with him at the studio, he had a torn rotator cuff that he had just had diagnosed here in Seattle. And he wasn't planning to get it repaired until he comes back to Seattle in April. Wait, what? He, I mean, he's back in Ukraine and he has a torn rotator cuff? Yeah, I mean, he told me this originally happened in October. So he's like been living with it for months already. And he says this is just the way it is. Like there's nowhere he could get it fixed in Ukraine and he's got to schedule it and just he'll come back. He'll see his family. He'll maybe travel to see the eclipse that's happening in April and he'll get that rotator cuff repaired. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm really proud of myself if I get a regular workout in during the week. And this is a 66-year-old man who is traveling back and forth to Ukraine, providing supplies. It's really remarkable. And some people may, you know, say David's a little uh, out of the ordinary, let's say. Yeah, I think we could probably say that. Um, and, you know, he told me even with all of this, he's still he's excited to get back to Ukraine. He was leaving the day after this interview, which happened earlier this month. And he said he really misses his dog, Libby. And, you know, I asked him how canine Libby is doing living in Lviv. She's doing great. Um, I keep her trained. Uh, there's plenty of rubble piles to practice on, that kind of thing. Lots of people who want to volunteer to hide for her because that's what you need. You need live humans to hide in, you know, piles of concrete so that uh, she can keep her skills up. Because, uh, you know, uh, basically this, she's still a, a FEMA search dog. So uh, I want to keep her 
uh, current and up-to-date and uh, ready to go if something should happen. Um, and she is ready to go. She is still current on on all her search skills, that kind of thing. So, what is her life like in Ukraine? What is she? Is she going with you to the front? Is she staying in Lviv? Nope, she's with me all the time. Uh, you know, there's there's the whole component of you know, depending on what we come across, it may be necessary to do a search or something like that. But then there's also my own personal mental health issues. And um, there's nothing like having a dog with you to raise your spirits, um, see her kind of earnestly doing her job. She's like, you know, walking around and, and that kind of thing. And it's like, oh, man, it is just so great to see her, you know, basically feeling like, you know, I'm on the job here. I'm This is what I am designed to do. So, yeah, seeing her uh, walking around and uh, doing, you know, she's as much team part of the team as any other member. Uh, so that's been great. It's been great to have her there for just the help that she can provide to Ukraine. Because the other thing we're doing, of course, is we're hopefully going to be training. Um, we're actually in the process of training Ukrainian uh, emergency services folks in the idea of search and rescue with dogs. Because mm-hmm. that's not really common there. And that is actually my pitch to um, FEMA to say, yeah, I realize this is a a FEMA asset, this dog, but uh, if I were able to take this dog with me to Ukraine, then I could potentially, not only would I keep her trained up so she's ready to go, but I can also start training Ukrainian men and women to actually be responders to um, these disasters. You know, collapse buildings is what she does. I mean, that is the very thing that she's trained to do. So uh, I made a presentation to the emergency services of Ukraine on that whole front as well. And they found it compelling. You know, it's like, this is a great idea. So um, that's what we're also doing. So on top of all the other stuff, we're also working on all the search and rescue stuff and training dogs, um, Ukrainian dogs to come up and be uh, first responders with regard to collapsed buildings and that kind of thing. I've been enjoying doing that a lot, and it's kind of um, my strongest point, I would say. So uh, being able to do the thing that I love to do most with my best friend in a country that really, really needs it has been just very fulfilling in many ways. Obviously, you're in Ukraine to help. Like, that is why you're there. But you're doing so much. Do you ever get time to, like, rest? <laughs> well, this is where I was just saying, you know, getting old socks. You know, um, I was just talking to the guys. Uh, I call them the guys, you know, the team, mm-hmm. the Stay Safe guys before I left and said, oh, my God, because I had just turned 66. And it's like, wow, the difference between doing this at 66 and 40 mm-hmm. is uh, tremendous. It's just uh, unbelievable how much more energy and you know resources I have available to me when I'm doing this kind of thing uh, 20 years ago. Now, uh, I still I do the best I can. And uh, so, you know, torn rotator cuff and, you know, COVID symptoms uh, aside, uh, I still am trying to do the best I can in the you know, 12, 14 hour days. So Ukraine is basically the size of Texas. So it's like a thousand miles across from one side to the other. So that's a 18, 20 hour drive to get from one end to the other. And when you get there, there you hit the ground running. There's there's no chance to just take a break and say, okay, now we're going to just stop or, you know, 
no hotels, certainly, but no even opportunity to just, you know, pull over to the side of the road and, you know, sleep in the back. Um, you know, for one thing, it's dangerous. But the other thing is the need is so huge. We're not going to sit on all these supplies when we have them in the truck. We need to get those out immediately, right? So then you spend the next four, eight, ten hours distributing supplies, food, water, all that stuff. And then you're loading people up, you know, so again, it's not like we can take a break and say, you know, okay, now we're going to sit for two hours and just, you know, or even take a nap. So, you know, down the coffee, um, get geared up. Once the um, refugees have been moved to someplace that is safe, then you can take a breath. And uh, often what we'll do at that point is then drive to someplace like um, Kiev or Kharkiv, large city where we can stay with friends, um, we can put our, our vehicles in a safe location and then sleep for eight or 10 hours and then turn around and drive all the way back uh, to Lviv. Kharkiv is the same way. It's a little bit, it's not quite as far. It's probably 800 miles instead of 1,000. But um, it's also um, much more intense environment down there because you're, you're, the Russians are shooting uh, artillery shells into the city of, of Kharkiv every day. Um, so on the, f- on the front, that's certainly happening. But in a city like Kharkiv or, or Kiev, they may be getting missile attacks and they may be getting the occasional artillery attack, but it's usually not every single day. Um, Kiev has just recently come under just a, this um, onslaught of missiles. And you may have heard that uh, it's probably 10 days ago or two weeks ago, they had the most missiles fired at Kiev than they've seen since the beginning of the war, something like 150 or 200 missiles. And um, thank God for the Patriot systems that are shooting these things down have been quite effective doing that. Um, but still, once you hit a missile, the parts still are scattered over, you know, a two-mile area where uh, these pieces come down and hit buildings and people on the street and that kind of thing. So um, still, in, it's, they're not getting the kind of um, attacks that they are in a place like, you know, uh, Kramatorsk, which is right, uh, right on the border of the battlefront. Um, or where we have our uh, shelter, which is in a little town called Konstantinivka, which is just right outside Bakhmut. Um, we have a shelter there with about 150 people in it. That um, That's often where we're able to go when, we have, when we're evacuating people from the front. If they don't know where to go, we have set up the shelter to take them there. Uh, 60% of that shelter is children under the age of 10. So it's a lot of children primarily, which is the thing that is most difficult to face with regard to this entire war is the effect that it's having on the children. Um, They are uh, doing the best that they can and their parents are primarily their moms because their dads are either on the front or someplace else. So it's usually almost 100% women and children. Seeing them come in with, you know, flak vests on. I mean, we're talking little children, three or four years old, wearing, you know, flak vests and helmets on their heads on a child size um, flak vests, which is not something that I even knew existed, that you would have uh, small enough helmets to fit on a four-year-old. Um, all, of, all of our flak 
vests and uh, helmets have orange coverings on them. They say children in um, Ukrainian on them, that kind of thing. But um, it doesn't seem to matter. You know, uh, they target any moving vehicle. And so it doesn't matter if it has a red cross on the top or if it's full of kids. Um, they're all getting targeted. So it's lucky that these things even make it through. Uh, some, some, Many of the vehicles don't, of course. But um, our vehicles so far, we've been relatively lucky. And with our personnel, we've been very lucky. Uh, we've had injuries of, of one sort or another. But um, it was only December 24th that one of our, um, one of our colleagues was killed in, in the Donbass. And uh, the person, her name is Kat, that we had worked – she was from the UK. And we had worked together all of 2022 and into the first quarter of 2023. So she was, she was just part of Stay Safe. She was just one, one of the people that was working with us, part of the team. And uh, – she had a background in nursing, so she decided that she wanted to be much closer to the front and actually work on the front lines as a medic, as a paramedic. And so she got the training to, to be a combat medic and uh, as a paramedic there, moved to the front, and she was just killed on December 24th. I'm so sorry. that was a very hard blow. Um, there are many people that I've met in – uh, the Donbass and um, in these areas that, um, you know, you might go out to dinner together or you might uh, be providing them food and you might sit down right there and eat or just to hear their stories. Um, in the eastern part of the country, they primarily speak Russian. So I have a – I lived in Russia for eight years and so I'm pretty fluent in Russian. So we can have these conversations. Um, and so you meet a lot of people and you might share a meal or, you know, uh, a drink or something like that. And then you might hear later that they were killed or something happened or they were evacuated because of injuries, that kind of thing. But Kat was somebody that we actually worked with. Uh -huh. <sighs> Sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> Didn't want that. <laughs> Didn't want that to happen. But, so give me a sec. Yeah. yeah. So Kat was somebody that we worked with. Uh, and it was hard. So, but, you know, uh, it's it's a lot of what's going on there. It's, it's the thing that keeps me going back. Um, there's no question, uh, as far as I'm concerned, about returning. Uh, I'm returning in two days, but I'll be there all through 2024, at least, and um, into 2025 and into the rebuilding. So that's my goal, and um, I'm going to stick to it uh, as best I can and uh, uh, continue to do what I can for Ukraine. Well, thank you for doing that and for coming back and for telling us. I know that, it, as you said, you know, it often feels like the world moves on whenever something new comes up. So having your perspective and being able to hear what's happening in Ukraine helps us remember that it's not something that we can just move on from. So thank you for doing that. My pleasure. Uh, happy to talk about Ukraine. But it's those people in Ukraine that are the heroes here. 
they have to live with it every single day. So, um, so I'm thankful that I can do anything to help. That was David Tagliani, a first responder and EMT currently working in Ukraine, where he's part of the Ukrainian NGO Stay Safe. You can learn more about Stay Safe on their website, staysafeua.org. And SoundSize Managing Producer Sarah Leibovitz brought us that conversation. And Sarah, you've spoken with David a few times now. What are you taking away from these conversations? You know, when we were first getting to the studio, David told me that he listens to every episode of SoundSide because it helps him feel connected to Seattle. Wow, that's really cool. I know. And I hope that by hearing his interview, other SoundSide listeners will feel more connected to David and to what's happening in Ukraine, even in a time when it can feel like the world is moving on. Thanks to David and to everybody who's listening. You are listening to SoundSide on KUOW. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. And hey, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.